If you'll turn your Bibles with me this morning to uh, three passages as we continue our Harmony of the Gospels. Turn over to Luke 18. We'll read a few verses there over in Mark 10 as well as Matthew 19, where we'll be spending the majority of our time this morning. Luke chapter 18, verses 28 through 30. Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Mark chapter 10. Verses 28 through 31. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Matthew 19. We'll read from verse 27 down to chapter 20, verse 16. Matthew 19, verse 27 through chapter 20, verse 16. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. The many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour And you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. 
But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there is such a tremendous lesson in this text for us to contemplate and consider and consider the implications of that lesson in so many directions. I pray that You would slow us down enough this morning to push out the hustle and bustle that sometimes attends this time of year and cause us to focus upon Jesus, the very reason for which we celebrate at this time of year. We thank You for the provision that You have made through Him, Father. And Jesus, we're thankful for Your perfect life, for Your sacrificial death, and for Your resurrection. We pray that this morning our thoughts would be directed rightly towards You, that You would make us attentive to Your Word, that You would change us and transform us by Your Holy Spirit. Yes, that You would do a work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, I want to just give a quick refresher of where we are in our gospel harmony. Jesus is coming to the very end of his earthly ministry, even though we have still a good chunk of material in all four gospels to work through. He's coming to his final days. He's on his final journey to Jerusalem and his meeting with death is very soon on the horizon. People are continuing to clamor around Jesus, including, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Parents with small children. Disciples are there trying to attempt to shoo away these little ones, but Jesus rebukes them and explains to them that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Then a rich young ruler approaches Jesus, and we kind of see some of the biases of the disciples because he isn't met with any barricades to coming to Jesus. They usher him right on through. And he seems to be the perfect candidate for conversion and for discipleship. He addresses Jesus with reverence. He comes asking, what must I do to be saved? He comes seeking salvation. He's a generally morally upright young man. He even claims to have kept the commandments of God since his youth. And while we might take issue with that claim, at least on an outward external focus, he must have kept it. Otherwise, all those around him would have cried out that that was completely bogus. Yet he knows deep down inside that he's missing something. So he asks Jesus, what do I lack? What do I still lack? Jesus instantly identifies this man's problem. He puts his finger right on the heart of the issue. It's this man's attachment to his riches. So what does he tell the man? He tells him to go and sell all that he owns and to give it to the poor and then to come and follow him after that. When faced with that choice, this rich young ruler goes away sad, we're told, because he had great riches. Jesus then uses an analogy with his disciples to speak of the difficulty that rich people have in entering into God's kingdom. He says that a camel will find it easier to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, that statement elicits pure shock from the disciples. 
They are not expecting a statement like that. If that's the case, they say, who can be saved? Now, remember, this is flowing out of their belief that those who are rich are obviously receiving God's blessing. So if those who are in God's good favor would find it so difficult to enter into God's kingdom, what hope is there for anyone else? Now, while it is absolutely true that it's easier to give up less stuff, so if you don't have much, it's easier to give up the little you have than if you have a lot. It's true. But we also know that whether you're rich or poor, your heart can be set on material goods all the same, and you can be lost all the same. But Jesus doesn't even go into any of that kind of discussion. He doesn't lessen the statement or try to say that the poor will necessarily find it any easier to get into heaven. His response is instead to encourage their despair. They go, oh, wait, let me back up on that a little bit. You're right. It's actually a lot easier than I just kind of got across there. Instead, he encourages their despair in human strength to bring about salvation. You see, the problem with their equation is that God was absent from the equation. In man's ability and power, yes, it's not only nearly impossible, it is impossible. But what is impossible for man is possible for God. God can do the humanly impossible. So yes, Jesus must give up on human strength and instead trust in God's power to do what you cannot Now, Jesus had told the rich young ruler that if he sold all of his possessions and he gave them away and he followed him, he attached this other statement to that as well. And you will have riches in heaven. Note this. It's not give away all your stuff and then you're going to live in poverty for the rest of your existence. He says, give away your stuff. Come follow me. And there's true riches that you will receive. Riches in heaven. In other words, Jesus encourages the man to give up fleeting vain, earthly riches in exchange for moth-proof, rust-proof, thief-proof, or theft-proof riches in heaven. But the man's heart was so captured by a love of wealth that he wouldn't release his grip on stuff, thereby actually ended up exhibiting the fact that stuff had a grip on his heart. But it seems that Peter, the ever-present spokesman for the disciples, Speaks up at this point. He's starting to put some things together in his mind. He's put two and two together and he's realized that there is a pretty good contrast between him and his companions, the disciples, and this rich young ruler. He and his associates had left everything to follow Jesus. Remember in some of the famous uh, narratives where Jesus calls the disciples, you know, on one, one occasion, several of the guys are out in boats, right? And he calls them to them. They leave the net, they leave everything behind, and they come and follow Jesus, perhaps leaving behind them a quite lucrative fishing business. So, what must this mean for them? Peter wants some further clarification. What were their just deserves? What is it that they have coming to them And I think that's a good question. What do we justly deserve? What can followers of Jesus Christ expect in the future? How does God distribute rewards? Who will get what and why? Does our obedience obligate God to give us greater blessings and rewards than others? What determines placement and prominence in God's kingdom? Well, Jesus gives a very helpful response to Peter. It takes on at least two distinct packs. 
Because there's something right about Peter's assumption and question, but there's also something wrong, which will be borne out even further in the following narrative. Following this, we're going to see Jesus predict his own death again. And then after that, we're going to see the disciples fighting and jockeying with one another for position in the coming kingdom. So what Jesus is about to say here, I just want you to note this at the outset, the disciples haven't gotten it, and we'll see right after here, they still don't get it. Even Jesus' closest associates were continually misunderstanding Jesus' mission and words. Yet Jesus takes time with them, and He continually exercises patience towards them. As a father speaking to a young, erring child, He provides correction and He provides further clarification. But there we see Jesus walking through this. He gives a statement, but he also gives a parable. And the parable that Jesus tells reverses human expectations. Our expectations are thrown on their head regarding rewards given for discipleship and on what basis those rewards are distributed. His use of a parable here, this literary device, provides ample opportunity for us to have our perspective changed. You know, a lot of these statements that Jesus makes in parables could have been stated in just plain English. Why go through all this ordeal of a parable And I think often it's because it's actually through the contemplation and study of the parable that God is working to actually change our mindset. Sometimes a straightforward command just doesn't get there the way that these parables are able to sink down deep and cause meditation. Because without that, our mindsets won't change, our perspective won't change, and we'll be continually in the same place that we have been before. The Lord continually manifests such wisdom and patience with His disciples And I'm so thankful we have moments like that where we can note that. Because don't we all need that? Aren't you glad that you see Jesus operating with such patience and gentleness and tenderness with His disciples? Because how many times have we needed that patience, that tenderness? How often have we been the ones, right after being taught something, disobeying directly the thing that we just learned? How often have we been the ones, the sheep, wandering away and He's graciously drawn us back into the fold? How graciously and gently and tenderly Jesus cares for His sheep. The bent rod He does not break. The smoldering wick He does not snuff out. How wonderful that He is gracious like this towards us. At first, Jesus' reply to this question from Peter takes on a straightforward description of the future kingdom. Future blessings will indeed be given. However, that statement is going to then give way to a parable. Some further teaching. And the use of the laborers in the vineyard parable provides us with a completely new perspective on God's distribution of rewards. And does so in such a way that we're drawn in and befuddled by what seems to us to be completely bad business practice. I mean, certainly this is one that labor unions would object to today, right? Could it be that Jesus' instruction here is meant to redirect our focus? Jesus uses the phrase, the last will be first and the first last, as bookends to what he's teaching. You see the question from Peter. He gives a straightforward statement. Then in verse 30, chapter 19 of Matthew, but many who are first will be last and last first. And then skip to verse 16 of chapter 20, right after the parable. So the last shall be first, the first last. He just reverses the order on those, but he bookends the parable with that statement. Could it be that Jesus is discouraging us from working for the express purpose of distinguishing ourselves horizontally from others, advancing our own goals, trying to get ourselves greater rewards at others' expense? If many last will be first and first last, it seems a 
vain thing to try to vie for position. Instead, we ought to trust ourselves to God who is both just and gracious. And the passage before us, I think, can be summarized into two lessons, each of which need to be further explained. And here's the two lessons, and we'll spend time with each one. First of all, God has great rewards in store for His children. That's the first lesson. God has great rewards in store for His children. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He has great rewards in store for His children. For Peter to ask the question, his question is at least least birthed from a right assumption, from Jesus' own words, that there are good things coming for Jesus' disciples. That is true. And Jesus first gives us an answer along those lines. But secondly, Jesus gives us a further clarification, which we'll look at in a few minutes, that God will distribute rewards on the basis of His grace. That's the second thing. God will distribute rewards on the basis of His grace. And we'll have to further explain that in a minute. So let's, first of all, begin with this, this, this lead up to the parable. We begin with the affirmative portion of Jesus' reply to Peter. Peter is right in the fact, number one, God has great rewards in store for His children. You see, God's gifts will not only be enjoyed now, but in a whole new world. Peter quickly points out where they have succeeded and that ruler had failed. They had left everything to follow Jesus. Peter left his employment as a fisherman. He had forsaken his business, his income, his home, his family, and all else to follow Christ. So what reward would be coming his way? The question seems to convey a sort of, perhaps not only an inquisitive mind, but perhaps some spiritual self-righteousness or covetousness as well. Peter sounds a little arrogant here in his comparison with the rich young ruler. He seems to imply that God owes him something. It's hard to tell exactly what's behind Peter's words, but from Jesus' response, it seems that there's at least something that Jesus is trying to crack through the use of the parable that's coming Bruner said it this way, if we're not careful too, we can successfully avoid the idol of money only to find ourselves with the new idol of self-congratulation. Isn't it scary that that can so often be the case? That in our fight against temptation and sin, when we do things in the flesh, we can go, yes, I did so good in not doing that, and simultaneously fall victim to pride and arrogance and self-congratulation for what we ourselves supposedly have done. But Peter is at least partially right. There are rewards to come for Jesus' followers. And Jesus' answer pictures seats of judgment from which his followers were judged, the twelve tribes of Israel. They're not only going to have a place in the coming kingdom, but seemingly here a place of prominence. They're going to be present there and they're going to be given responsibilities and areas of authority. We have other allusions to this very truth in things like the parables of the talents and minas. But this is sometime off in the future. Jesus says, in the time of the regeneration. Otherwise, it can be translated the renewal. This word is the word that's found in Titus 3.5, a quite famous verse that people are familiar with. But there, it talks about the regeneration of the soul, of the individual, of the renewal that God brings about when a person is converted to Christianity. And a person trusts in Jesus Christ. Here the word is used on a more global scale. The regeneration, the renewal. And we know from that statement that Jesus is picturing the final cosmic renewal that God will bring to pass in His creation. The new heavens 
and the new earth. So Jesus is saying, yes, in that coming day. Now, how, how much time to elapse between the moment when Jesus said this and the time when that comes to fulfillment is unknown to us and certainly unknown to the disciples. They thought probably it was a lot shorter amount of time in between that, that coming future reality. But nonetheless, it is true, in that final day, there will be rewards distributed. There will be places of authority given out. But the chief blessing that's given to all Christians is emphasized in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke in this account. It's not that we, those who suffer loss in this life, will not only receive hundreds of times that here, but in the life to come, eternal life. Eternal life. You see, the chief blessing given to Christians is eternal life. What is eternal life? Well, it doesn't merely mean just living forever. That's partly what it means, ongoing existence. But eternal life, as defined in the Scriptures, defined by Jesus, is knowing God the Father and God the Son whom He sent. It's communion with the triune God. It's, this is the chief blessing given to all Christians And it's a matter of inheritance. It's not something we earn. It's not something that we merited. The sons of God inherit eternal life. It's a gift bestowed upon them by God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. You see, once someone becomes part of God's family, they become a beneficiary of the gifts that are distributed to all of His children. And you get gifts you could never earn and you certainly don't deserve. So Jesus explains that any earthly loss for His sake will be made up for in heavenly Rewards. The life to come will bring utter justice and untold blessing and reward. So those who seek first place in this life and desire to amass things in this earth will ultimately find eternal loss. Those who give up things of this world in exchange for things to come will receive eternal reward. Jesus attempts to picture this by explaining that you'll receive 100-fold as much, 100 times as much blessings, and inherit eternal life. Take any good thing, multiply it by 100, and it becomes much better, doesn't it? I mean, is there a big difference between getting a 1 on a test and a 100 on a test? I think students would normally say, yes, yes, there's a big difference there. I just watched an episode, don't condemn me, of Curious George with my son this last week. And in the episode that we watched, we were talking about the power of zeros. And George goes to the store to buy a dozen donuts, but adds a couple zeros to the end and comes home with a hundred dozen donuts. And all kinds of fun ensues. My son enjoyed it. But that hundred dozen is a lot different than one dozen. And think about it. Take any pleasure here on earth. Jesus says that in heaven, the blessings to be given will be at least 100 times better. At least 100 times better. Often what happens with us is we become so earthly-minded, we don't have the right perspective. And we go around thinking that this thing, this little earthly pleasure, is worth sacrificing so much, when in reality it's not. We suffer from short-sightedness and such narrow-mindedness. It's a great song that came out several years ago by Stephen Curtis Chapman, entitled, Wake Up and See the Glory. And in there, he has a line where he says, We're splashing in a puddle when we could be swimming in the ocean. We're playing a Game Boy while we're standing in the middle of the Grand Canyon. We're eating candy when we're sitting at a gourmet feast. So often, we are deceived 
by the petty things of this world. And Jesus says, there are much better things yet to come. The best, my friends, is yet to come for those who are in Christ. For those who are outside of Christ, this is the best you'll ever see or have. Because at least at the moment, you experience the general grace of God. Since God's kingdom operates ultimately by God's grace and not human works, many things will be turned on their head. Positions of prominence will be granted on the basis of God's wisdom and grace. And the purpose for those positions are quite different than the positions that people normally think of of positions of authority in this world. Jesus stated this principle in so many other ways throughout the New Testament. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. According to this formula, we see how Jesus perfectly models the teaching He gave because He came from the highest pinnacle in glory and temporarily laid aside the full exercise of all of the glories of His divine attributes and came and humbled Himself, becoming even obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then we're told in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and given Him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Many first shall be last and last first. While the disciples still don't understand what Jesus is driving at, He's about to predict His own coming death to them in the coming verses once again. There are great rewards coming to those who are in Christ. The best is yet to come. It's another thing though that we learn about this, and that's that God provides wonderful blessing regardless of when you come. We're going to look more at this in a minute from another perspective, but before we get to that one, I want to consider the parable from the perspective of one of those guys hired in the 11th hour. We sometimes even use that phrase today, right? It was the 11th hour. And when we use that phrase, we say, I was down to the wire, right? I was right there, the day of reckoning was coming, and there I was. Some of you have treated many, maybe students who are coming up on exams and stuff like that, and final projects. Maybe some of you are in the final hour and find yourself writing 10-page papers with not, little, not much time, or studying for exams over classes that you haven't spent much time with over the rest of the semester. The 11th hour. I want to consider this parable, we're going to look at it more in a minute, but just for a moment, Consider it from the perspective of the 11th hour laborer. Is it not wonderful? Is not this guy jumping up and down? Is he not excited, elated? Isn't it beautiful that God can make beauty from ashes? He can take a life that has been spent on vanity and in the last hour of that individual's life make something beautiful. And bestow blessings upon such an individual. You see, time does not prevent God from extending His grace. He is calling and working at all hours of life. We see this in the parable. He's calling someone in the first hour, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, the eleventh hour. And He's calling people and He's drawing them into His field. What joy ought to fill our hearts that Those who come late to the marketplace are still invited to come work in God's field. Those whose opportunities and capacities and strengths are limited are still considered useful to God's purposes and given responsibilities and blessings. 
when the owner asks them, why have you been here all day? Why have you been standing idle? They respond, no one's hired us. This has elicited some amount of conjecture. Why is it they weren't hired? Was it because they were off doing something else? Was it that maybe they had some physical ailment? Maybe they didn't seem as hearty as other workers? We don't know. It could be any number of things. But they had been ill-regarded by others and they were overlooked by others. But now they're being put into this owner's field. Glorious it is to contemplate this parable from the perspective of the 11th hour laborer. Dear friend, you might be one of those. You might be in the 11th hour. And it may be late. And you might feel like as if you've wasted your entire life. And you'd be right if you've lived your life for your own selfish ambition and glory. You'd be right to say that you wasted your life. However, if your life is not yet over, if there's still breath in your lungs and you still have ears to hear the gospel, it's not too late. It might be late, but it's not too late. And God can bring something beautiful from the ashes. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Respond to the gospel. And be warned. There are so many who become hardened through life. Because they continually put Jesus off. I'll deal with Jesus later on, they say. Oh, just not right now, they say. But the longer you refuse to say yes to Christ, to listen to the Gospel, to respond with repentance and faith, the less likely you are to be saved. Ryle comments this way. This is a great statement. One thief on the cross was saved that none should despair. But only one that none should presume. A false confidence in the eleventh hour has ruined many souls. Praise the Lord that He's working even in the eleventh hour, but don't presume upon the eleventh hour, or who knows whether or not your time will be up before you know it. Death can come suddenly to any of us. But Jesus has more to say on the subject. It's crazy how... Pride is such an enemy of ours. I mean, he starts by affirming Peter. Peter, you're right. There are great rewards coming. You're right to, to uh, gather that implication from my words. There are great rewards coming. And there's tremendous encouragement that's afforded to Christians knowing that the best is still yet to come. There are words of hope here. But it's also a sad state of our souls that we can twist words of hope into impure motives and impure goals. So Jesus provides this parable by which His disciples are warned against misunderstanding the privileges and blessings that have been given. He wants to guard the disciples from an improper view of heavenly rewards and how they are distributed. On what basis are these rewards distributed? So that's my second lesson here this morning. God will distribute rewards in accordance with His grace. God will distribute rewards in accordance with His grace. I'm going to hash that out a little bit further. To accuse God of injustice is to misunderstand the entire situation. To accuse God of injustice in the giving out of rewards is to entirely misunderstand the situation. 
Here's the parable summary. The landowner travels to the marketplace where day laborers would gather and wait to be hired. They're hoping for work. The picture is that these of those who were most desperate for work. There's some areas even in our region where you have people who gather together. There's day laborers hoping that someone comes by and offers. And sets his heart on it, so that he may not cry out against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin to you. This, this would be better. So there the Lord is giving specific instruction regarding people who are working in this capacity, saying, give them their wages each day. And we'll see that follow itself through in this parable. Now with this first group of workers, it becomes a mutually agreed occasion. They agree together that for the day's work, they'll receive a denarius. That has been stated by many that this is a typical sort of day's labor. It's a fair wage for a day's work. But the landowner then returns to the marketplace to recruit more workers at other times of the day. And he finds workers idle. Now, we hear the word idle and we instantly think lazy. And that's not necessarily the case. They just aren't employed. They're unemployed. And why he didn't see them at the first hour could, again, be for many reasons. Maybe they were working at their own place before showing up at the marketplace. Maybe they had another job before that and now they were back. Or maybe they were just lazy and they got there late. We don't know. But there they are, unemployed, waiting in the marketplace. Now, when speaking to these workers that are hired at the third hour, there is no negotiation for how much they will make. The owner says, come and work in my field, and I will do for you what is right. I will do right by you. That's the statement that's made. And the third hour workers come on that promise, trusting that the owner will do them right. He does the same thing with the sixth hour workers and the ninth hour workers and the eleventh hour workers. Five groups hired at different times for different lengths of time. One for 12 hours, one for nine, one for six, one for three, one for one. And just so you are aware, as typical, it, during a harvest time of grapes for workers to work 12 hours. But if a landowner had a ripened uh, crop, it was understandable that if he didn't get enough people in his first go around, he might go back to the marketplace and search out some more. There's no absence of work to be done, and he wants to get the crop in. Otherwise, he's going to be losing money. The astonishing factor, though, in the parable is what these different groups receive. It seems to make horrible, horribly bad business sense. No one would hire workers for a partial day's work and then pay them for a whole day. Especially when it was quite typical for employers to treat their hired help with little regard. It is this unusual business practice, which, for honest, I think all of us read that and instantly think that's unfair. 
That's unfair. If I was one of those guys working out there for the whole 12 hours, this other guy comes in the last part of the day. For that matter, you see how they, when they come and grumble and complain, they complain specifically with uh, an allusion to during the heat of the day. We've been there not only 12 hours, but during the heat of the day. Those guys came evening hours. The easiest part of the day. One hour left, and they're getting the same as us. So they tried to explain this oddity. Some explanations have ranged from, well, maybe the workers who worked that last hour were like super productive. And what they did in the last hour was work 12 hours from those other guys that started there. You know, those guys that started there in the 12th, the very beginning, they had lots of coffee breaks and talks at the water cooler and all that kind of stuff, right? And so now we got this last hour and those guys were just really pumped and they got stuff done. But no such explanation is present in the text. And the owner doesn't criticize the work of the 12-hour workers either. Others say the parable teaches that it doesn't matter what you do for Jesus because all will be rewarded the same regardless. This seems to miss the whole thrust of the gospel message and instruction of the kingdom. We're to be hard workers for Jesus. Jesus' point isn't to say that we shall just sit back on our laurels now and who cares about anything. As a matter of fact, we have many other passages in scripture which seem to speak about differing rewards. Those have to be handled in their own time and place as well. It's not the main purpose of this morning's message, though. What is Jesus getting at? I think what comes closer to the answer is that Jesus is using this parable to picture a little bit more on the very scenario that is upon them and will be upon the early church, and that is of the entrance of the Gentiles into God's kingdom and his agenda Those who came early, therefore, would be associated with the Jews and those who come later with the Gentiles. However, I think that might be more specific than is necessary. While I think it definitely could encompass that, I think it pictures this principle regardless of where you are in ethnic origin. Whether you're a Jew or Gentile coming late in life or early in life, I think is being pictured here. You see, when it comes to rewards, you will never get less than you deserve. Let me start with that. When it comes to rewards, you'll never get less than you deserve. Why? How can I say that? Because God is just. God is just. He would never give you less than you deserve. The surprise of the parables unveiled when the order of payment is visited. You think about this for a minute. Had the order not been done the way that the owner asked the foreman to give out the money, then probably what would have happened is those ones that are hired first, if they got paid first, they would have gotten their denarius and walked away. It's very purposeful. The owner wants to pay the last guys who came to work first. It also seems to back up this whole idea of so many who are last will be first and first last. So it's all kind of coming together here. So purposefully, he's making those guys who worked 12 hours watch as a denarius is given to the guys who worked one hour. And by assumption, to the three hour, to the six hour, to the nine hour. And now it comes to the 12 hour guys. Now it's interesting, no one else complains. We don't have the nine hour workers or the six hour workers or the three hour workers complaining about their difference from the one hour workers. They seem to be, okay, whatever. Now it is interesting also to note that there was no no contractual arrangement at the beginning. Just that the owner would do right by them. And none of these guys actually gave a full day's work. So perhaps they all feel very happy about this arrangement because they all got a full day's wage and none of them worked a full day. Even if that guy only worked one, I only worked nine. I still didn't work a full day and I still got a full day's wage. 
Then we get to those first hour guys, the guys who came right at the very beginning, worked hard all day through the heat of the day, and they're upset. And when they complain, I mean, hadn't they worked 12 times as much as the one-hour hirelings? The owner reminds them that no injustice has been perpetrated here, for they received exactly what they had agreed upon. They can't bring a legal charge against him. Here's the contract. This is what we agreed to. You're getting exactly what I said you'd get. So what's your issue? He merely acted with generosity towards those who came later. He even addresses his accusers with the term friend. He looks at one as his friend. Seems to be even more courteous towards them than they are towards him. As I think about this, can't help but think that we identify with those guys sometimes. Have you ever even been there, just kind of practical everyday situations where your appreciation for having a job can degenerate so quickly if you notice what you consider to be an inequity? All of a sudden you're loving your job, and now all of a sudden you realize, well, that guy's getting paid more than me? I don't like my job anymore. What's changed? You were happy before you knew that, but now you're not so happy? What's changed? Has your job changed? Has your pay changed? We're very, very similar to these men. The landowner points out that their appeal to justice just does not work. They had no claim in regards to truth or equity. They received what was typical of a day's wage. They'd even agreed to the one denarius. There were absolutely no legal grounds for their complaint. It would be thrown out of a court of law. When it comes to rewards, you'll never get less than you deserve. God is just. Secondly, God does not owe you anything. He gives rewards by grace. God is generous. God is not only just, God is generous. The owner then follows up his previous statement to these 12-hour laborers with this. Don't I have the right to do with my own however I please? Can't I do with my own money however I want? You see, the laborers here had overstepped their proper place to presume to tell the master of the field how he uses his own money. This isn't your money, guys. It's mine. And I can distribute it how I see fit. And you're not in a position to criticize me or to complain about it. They were his to do with as he pleased. This is such a great reminder to all of us. Remember, God does not owe us. We're the ones owing him. We can never do something to place God under obligation to us. How often have you found yourself doing something? Well, God, if I do this, then you're going to, I'm going to put that in the bank. And then you're going to help me out with this other situation that's coming up down the line. We can never obligate God to act on our behalf. If that's true here temporally, it's also true eternally. You remember, it's not our works that merit us salvation. Our works flow from salvation. Having been saved by grace alone, and then that very grace which we have received is employed by the Lord to give us a will, a desire to do His work, and the power and ability to do it as well. You see, God is the Creator, and He is the owner, and He is due our lives of complete service. 
God owes no one anything. Thirdly, God can do whatever he desires with his own stuff. God is the sovereign owner. No matter the different situations of these men and their relative abilities, everyone was a recipient of a day's wage from a man who was under no obligation to hire them in the first place. He could have left them all there in the marketplace without a job at all. And then when we start to think about our own situation and, and before the Lord, is any of our service really, truly acceptable? And if we're really honest about this, is any of our service done out of completely pure motives, with the right heart, in the right manner, with the right method, in accordance with everything that God would desire? I love some of those Puritan prayers where they say things like, even my repentance needs to be repented of. Even my repentance is filled with sin. Even when I try to say I'm sorry, I mess up. You see, our service is in itself unacceptable. It's tainted by sin. And here it is, God being pictured as a sovereign owner. He's the one seeking workers. He's He's the one that calls them. He's the one that places them in service. He's the one that puts them in the field. It's not that God needs any of us, but that he can use us and he delights in blessing us. All followers of Christ should fulfill the work entrusted to them, leaving the distribution of reward to him. The Lord is just. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is generous. Let's just trust him. Just like the three hour, six hour, nine hour, eleven hour workers as they went out into the field, there was no contract. But they trusted in the justice and generosity of the owner. You see, to accuse God of injustice is to completely miss the whole point. There was no injustice here on this occasion. There has been no legal fault. But the second thing that is pointed out to us is to accuse God of injustice is to reveal your own selfish heart. You see, the problem is not with God, but with us. We're selfish. So this is how this goes. These guys who have worked all day see the dramatic contrast between the work done between the different groups and therefore surmise that the master's action is inequitable. It's it's unfair. But ultimately, the problem is not injustice on the part of the landowner, but jealousy within the workers. The charge of injustice was based upon the assumption that if these other guys got paid better than they should have, then I should get paid better than I should have. See how it works? I wonder if when they're sitting there, I wonder what kind of thoughts are going through their mind. It's like, okay, those guys who worked one hour, they got a denarius. Oh, what's coming to me? You know? And they get to the three hour guys, and like, they get a denarius. Well, maybe there's still something good coming to me. Six hour, they get a denarius. Nine, they get a denarius. And now by this time, I'm wondering, they're already formulating a plan. If we get a denarius, there's something wrong here. And we're going to complain. You see, ultimately, though, the problem is not with the landowner, but with jealousy within the workers. The charge of injustice was based on the assumption that the extra pay they wanted, they actually deserved. They came to a conclusion that that which they wanted, they deserved. And therefore, 
Now there's been an injustice that's happened. And man, is this application all over America today. The entitlement culture that is America today. The thing I want, I'm now owed. And now, because I didn't get it, there's been an injustice. This is the game that's being played by these guys. And it's been with the human race as long as there's been sin. You see, we're all recovering Pharisees. We can complain and murmur about unmerited gifts being distributed to others and consider it unfair. But in reality, fairness isn't even part of the equation. You don't deserve any of the blessings you have either. How about that? So your reaction is just demonstrating selfishness or envy. These guys were perfectly fine with the denarius for the day. What upset them was that others who they thought weren't deserving of a denarius got it. And now since they got it, I'm upset. Even note the language that they use here. Verse 12, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us. Get it? You've made them like us. In other words, we're on a higher level than them. We perform better than them. They shouldn't be present here. But it ends up being revealed as our envy and our callousness. We're envious. The landowner finishes the rebuke with this. Or are you envious? Literally translated, do you have an evil eye? Do you have an evil eye? Because I'm generous. He pinpoints the issue. They don't like his generosity towards others. In the end, the owner is both fair and generous. Their gripe was not with the master's promise keeping. He kept his promise. Their issue was with his generosity. Their accusation is actually a cover over their own envy and greed. They're envious. They're greedy. They want more. And now they deserve more. And if they got that much, we should get even more than them. We're better than them. We did more than them. But you see, it wasn't a matter of equity here. It was a matter of generosity and grace. How glorious that heaven does not operate in accordance with fairness. What I deserve, but instead on the basis of grace, unmerited favor. You see, our task is to labor faithfully in service to our king, trusting God to be fair and gracious, for he is. And let me just wrap up things with this consideration. Beware of forgetting what your real just deserves are. Do you really want the wages that you have earned? Do you really want that? Do you really want God to bring out the scales? And judge you on the basis of your work. Is that really what you want? Just like we don't have the older brother's response in famous parable of the prodigal son or the prodigal sons or the two lost sons, however you want to say it. Neither are we given the response of these workers here. Which seems to just invite us to contemplate our response You know what? Our only hope of escaping this sort of mentality is to recognize that we also are unworthy laborers who are in dire need of God's saving grace. And we need his grace just as much as anyone else. 
Luke 17.10. So you too, when you do all the things you've have been commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. MacArthur says rightly, differences among human beings are infinitely smaller than the difference between even the most righteous human being and God. Before receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, all men are equally lost. And after they receive him, they are equally saved. Here's the deal. God has not given you what you ultimately deserve, and that is hell. Why? Because God cares for people more than things. No one otherwise would pay a day's wages to a worker who only worked one hour. That owner cared more about this guy who was out of work than he did about getting his just compensation for the amount of work to the amount of pay that he gave them. The owner hired people more out of what he could give them than what they could do for him. They needed work, so he provided for them. He was thinking of people, using his abundant means to help them. What is it that we have ultimately earned for ourselves? The wages of sin is death. We deserve ultimate judgment and punishment. And God must not just let sin go. It has to be dealt with, so he has and he will. You see, God treats us in accordance with mercy. He considers our need and he provides above and beyond for it. Commercially, this owner seems like a fool. He'll be bankrupt if he continues on the present course for very long. Yet, this is what God has done for us. Jesus came becoming weak and impoverished for us. He took the punishment we were due that we might be extended forgiveness and restoration. What great lengths God has gone to to display his love for us and to think about our unworthiness of such a gift. No matter what you've done with your life, and regardless of the quantity and or quality of your labor for Christ, the same glorious salvation is available to all. You see, God has not only not given you what you ultimately deserve, but he's given you what you did not deserve, and that is heaven. This parable is so helpful. It doesn't negate... The gradation of reward in heaven. Other passages speak to that. But the point of this text is to demonstrate that we all equally stand before the Lord without any disadvantage and will be rewarded for what we have done. God will be gracious to all. For all entering heaven are beneficiaries of God's unmerited, unearned favor. Ultimately, we're all wretches in need of grace. And if God dealt with us, purely on the basis of justice, with no mention of grace or mercy, we'd all be judged. We'd all be found wanting. You see, God is fair in the sense of bringing evil to justice. But he's not fair in the sense of giving the same favors to everyone. He distributes gifts differently to different people. He didn't make us all the same, did he? He gave us different gifts and different abilities and different talents and different opportunities. We can be sure of this. He never gives less than we deserve. You see, God's generosity is manifested in at least two directions. He gives gifts we don't deserve and he withholds punishments we do deserve. God is gracious, but he's not gracious because he owes it to us. Or to anyone else. 
How is it possible then, if God does care about sin, and he must be just in that sense, how can he extend such blessings to us? And that answer is found ultimately in the gospel. It's found in Jesus. The reason why God can bestow blessings on us is because he sent his son to pay our debt. And no matter what rewards are given, everything in God's kingdom is ultimately due to God's grace. All in God's kingdom owe it to the same foundation. By God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, our needs are met in Christ's glorious riches. As Daniel Doriani states, before God there are two choices. Salvation by grace or damnation by works. No one is good enough to earn God's presence. You see, among the most basic truths of Christianity is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. That's certainly therefore not by works. Yet if we begin to forget that we owe everything we have to God's unmerited favor, we can begin thinking that we're owed something from him. I had read this morning from Galatians, and we can start thinking like the Galatians did, believing themselves to have begun by the Spirit, but to have continued on by working in the flesh, and therefore starting to be owed something from God. You see, ultimately, the reward that is given is not due to our works, but due to God's grace, because even the works we do are a product of God's grace. It's not on the basis of negotiation and merit that we hope to be treated, but in accordance with grace, God's unmerited favor. So we have to continually reconsider our notions of justice and fairness. Is fairness what you really want? It's not what I want. I want God's grace. When considering rewards, we need to begin with the right starting place. And remember that God has already due perfect obedience and service what we do have, we, what do we have that we have not been given? Everything we have is a product of God's giving it to us. He owns everything. He's Lord of everything. He's creator. And when we have done all, we are unprofitable servants, merely doing what was our duty to do in the first place. Yet the Lord promises blessings. And as I've mentioned, truth be told, all of our service in the end is quite miserable. It's so poor and imperfect, mixed with multitudes of sinful attitudes and expressions. I can see at the end of all of that, if he was to give me any reward in heaven for something I had done, there would be no, nothing to give to me. Because it's all imperfect. Paul explains that grace was given him to preach among the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Do you see this? Paul says even his service was a product of grace. Grace was given to him to minister among the Gentiles. To preach. Preaching was a manifestation of God's grace. The opportunity to minister to Gentiles was a manifestation of God's grace. God empowers our service. He grants ability and opportunity. We might plant and water, but it's the Lord who causes growth. So true spiritual success is only that which God enables. God is behind it all. It all rebounds to his glory. So what a wonderful thought it is to rest in the, in the truth that God is sovereign in the bestowal of his grace. The field is ripe for harvest. It's like that vineyard with grapes ready to be picked. There's plenty of work to do. 
And no matter how limited your own time and resources are, we recognize we can't get back time that's behind us. We can't get that back. It's already gone. But you can give what you have left. And isn't it glorious that God is calling people in all hours of life, some from their earliest days, others in their final moments, but what joy that ultimately we have, that ultimately our reward is not based in our working, but in His bestowing. God's promises will be fulfilled, and He will do what is right, and He will give beyond what we are due. Ultimately, thank God that instead of getting our just deserves, He offers us mercy and grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for the humbling passage before us. We find ourselves often murmuring and complaining, jockeying for position, looking for selfish interests. We repent of that, Lord, and we ask for Your Holy Spirit to work in our minds and hearts. We thank You that ultimately we're not getting what we deserve as Christians. What we deserve is hell, but instead we've been granted heaven. We've gotten something we don't deserve. And Lord, thank You that no matter where people are in this room, You're at work calling people of all, at all hours of life. We ask even in this moment that you might grant repentance and faith to some in this room. You bring them into your kingdom. We know this is impossible for man, but it's possible for you. And so we ask that you would work by a mighty work of your Holy Spirit to change hearts and to cause men and women to be born again to a living hope in Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you have provided and accomplished in and through him. We thank you for eternal life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.